Hello and welcome to Life Sentences. I'm Caroline Baum. Now, I know I said that last week's episode was the final in this series, but then along came a juicy biography about two big stars and I thought, well, it would be nice to end with a hit of glamour. Truly Madly is Stephen Galloway's behind-the-scenes telling of one of the great love stories of stage and screen, between Laurence Olivier, who was in his day the greatest Shakespearean actor of his age, and Vivian Lee, who became a Hollywood goddess after snatching the most prized screen role of them all from much bigger stars as Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind. Together, they blazed and combusted, As a biographer, Stephen Galloway has the chops for this kind of material. He's an Emmy Award-winning former features editor at The Hollywood Reporter and currently Dean of Cinema and Media Studies at Chapman University in California. I spoke to him via Zoom and began by asking him about the difference between authorised and unauthorised biographies as both are part of the Hollywood genre. I'm wondering what your take is on the Hollywood biography in terms of the issues around authorised versus unauthorised. Authorised used to be the stamp of approval and said this is legitimate and worth considering. It's actually become a kind of negative because what you assume is this is the one that hides stuff. And there have been some very prominent biographies that very prominently hit stuff, like the Bill Cosby (laughs) biography, which didn't go into all the the, the scandals, you always have this problem with biography that if somebody is helping you, there may be strings attached in the contract, but there's also a moral issue that you become bonded to that person. And my first biography was of a, a woman named Sherry Lansing, who for many years was the most powerful person in Hollywood. And I'm lucky because my admiration for her has only grown since I finished the book. But you're also aware when you're sitting down talking, you're in this position where you feel like squirming because the unpleasant things must go in there. And I'm always asking myself, am I too soft on the unpleasant things? And that inevitably, there is no perfect biography. There is no perfect journalism. You can't detach relationships, emotions, how you perceive the truth is a big part of biography that separates it from Wikipedia. What's your point of view? And with each person I've written about, I'm always trying to step back and say, what actually is my point of view? Am I right? That is really fascinating. And in terms of that, I mean, I'm just thinking about the kinds of litigation that that we see in Hollywood over issues of defamation. How would you think one would ever hope to get to the truth with a biography of, say, Johnny Depp or Angelina <laughs> Jolie or Leonardo DiCaprio? I mean, these days, stars are much more protected. The media is also much more intrusive. But at the same time, the stars can also control their image much more carefully. So the dance has become even more complicated. In some ways, when it's someone like Johnny Depp, it's easier because there are lawsuits. There are people who talk to you on background or off the record. I broke one of those first big stories about what was going on on the set of Pirates of the Caribbean, talking to people on background, and you can get a lot. We couldn't write some of it because, and this is fair, if you don't actually have the proof then you shouldn't be writing. And stories that would go past our lawyer who would say, this is potentially libelous. And then you wouldn't write it. That's one of the reasons why people didn't write about Harvey Weinstein, who knew 
many atrocious things because you must have the proof. But if it's a Johnny Depp who really is out there, who's left a trail of, you know, litter behind him, it's easier than when it's somebody who's less public and less well-known. Because then if you're reaching people, they might not want to speak to you. And even when I did the Sherry Lansing book, people would call and say, are you okay with me talking? She, she would say yes and speak truthfully. So each particular case has its own challenges. Lawsuits are sort of the last step in, in writing. And in everything I've done, every major profile, book, there's a lawyer who takes a look and, and part of it is subjective because is this fair, is it not? Do we think we're going to be sued? Do we have the appetite to be sued? Those questions all come in. It's not a, a science. So is there a Hollywood star that you think of today, Stephen, where they are genuine and transparent, i.e. what you see is what you get? They're not hiding a secret about mental health or addiction or sexual orientation. Is there someone you can see in the Hollywood landscape today where you think, well, if someone were going to write a biography of X, it would be interesting because they are at the peak of their craft, but there wouldn't be all this kind of, there wouldn't be all these skeletons in the cupboard. Well, we all have skeletons, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we all have things we don't want people to know. And they're not necessarily about, you know, our addiction or, you know, molesting or sexual preference. It can be minor things that embarrass us. You know, uh, I had an affair with you know, such and such a person, I'm deeply ashamed of it, and nobody would know. I think most stars, we know a lot like that. There are a few where I kind of roll my eyes because the public impression is very different. I'm thinking of one in particular, megastar, who's a terribly abusive alcoholic, who is really disliked, but on the screen has great dignity. And you empathize with him. There are that many. However, the, ca the, the myth is the camera never lies. It lies all the time. <laughs> and whenever I meet a star who's not the way he seems, I'm always shocked because I'm like everybody else. I bought into it. I, I think of two. One was Chadwick Boseman. And I remember doing a round table with him at, at the time, Black Panther. And I was shocked on two counts, the first thing is when we did the round table, he was such a gentle and thoughtful person. And I remember saying, you know, your answers are wonderful and avoid all cliches. And he wasn't at all that character in Black Panther. Mm. He acted, he was lovely. And then of course he died. And I thought we were having this conversation without me or anyone else having a clue he was dying of cancer. Mm. And the other one, Many years ago, when I was sort of starting to write profiles for The Hollywood Report, I went to interview Michael Douglas at his house. He gave us the first interview after he'd been diagnosed with throat cancer. And Michael Douglas, to me, was Gordon Gecko of Wall Street and sort of brazen, a man of the world, confident. And I found a completely different person who had wrestled with all sorts of issues of addiction, who'd had a very difficult relationship with his father, Kirk, was a much more sensitive soul, like all artists, mm. than I'd expect. And I thought, oh, here I am again. I'm buying into the image. One of the hard things is 
am I meeting them on a good day or a bad day? Is, you know, when I started this new biography about Laurence Olivier and Vivian Lee, I hesitated because they've both been dead for many years. I was never going to meet them. How can I get that instinctive sense of somebody? And actually, in some ways, you read them better when you're reading diaries and letters. That you meet somebody... I remember meeting Bill Clinton once and thinking, I'm dying to know what he's like in person. Well, in a few minutes, you don't know what he's like. You get that particular moment. When you're reading letters and diaries, you do get a much deeper insight. But the other thing that's interesting, and we don't have this privilege in our own lives, you can slice year by year how somebody changes and develops. And if we look back on our own lives, we've created our own narrative. This is the year when I had that insight, and it may be false and distorted. Or I was always like this. Well, maybe you weren't. <laughs> we have those arguments with our parents, you know. And so when you're looking at material like that, you can actually see things with a much greater degree of precision. So let's talk about Laurence Olivier and Vivian Lee, this absolutely incandescent couple in their day. Can you talk to us a little bit, first of all, about their backgrounds? Because their backgrounds were so completely different. And different from what we expect, because, because are there any two actors who represent class and British upper class as thoroughly as they do? Not in the public mind, but neither one was that. First of all, Olivier was the son of a humble parson and grew up in, he called it genteel poverty, but you can put the stress on the poverty. And it was a very difficult upbringing. Vivian was actually born in India and spent the first years of her life in Darjeeling and Calcutta. So she was an Anglo in India and her father had made good. He was a stockbroker, but he came from a very Northern background grew up as a bank clerk, you know. <laughs> and I was shocked when actually Olivier's son talk, talk, put on that accent and told me, you have to understand, this was Ernest, the, Vivian's father. And then, of course, everything changed because she had this idyllic upbringing with servants and nannies and governesses. And then at six and a half years old, this horrible thing happens where her parents go on this journey, put her on the ship with them. They go on this wonderful excursion to London, take her to the theatre, which is magical, right after World War I. Museums, churches, restaurants, everything. And then one day they drive her out to the country and these big gates open and that the hand of a mother superior comes out and grabs her and she doesn't see the parents again for years. And mm. she's six and a half years old. And the trauma that created never left her. Was her Anglo-Indian childhood similar to that of Merle Oberon? Yes. I, it, I don't know much about Merle Oberon's upbringing, uh, but Merle Oberon, like Vivian, hid the background. I think she pretended she was Tasmanian. She did? Yes, she did. And then, of course, married Alexander Corder, who made her crew, who was very, very close to the Olivier's. Merle Oberon and Olivier hated each other. They did Wuthering Heights together and they could not stand each other. He was at his worst in those moments. At some point, you know, she'd had, I think she'd had some illness when she was young and her, her, she had pock marks on her face and he belittled her for it. I mean, <gasps> things that make you almost 
change your mind about do I like this guy he was very young he was he changed people change but they really really did not get on well one of the people I spoke to was Corder's nephew Michael Corder who became the editor-in-chief at one of the big publishing houses He's written a wonderful book called years ago called Charmed Lives about the whole Corder family. And for the listeners who don't know, the Corder, Corder was this larger-than-life, most important producer in England. And Merle Obron was his auntie Merle, you know. <laughs> but they did not get on. No, they did not. I want to come back to Olivier's character later on in this conversation, because obviously the emphasis that you put, the point of view, the perspective that you bring to this book that makes it so fresh in its take on this couple about whom so much has been written is Vivian's mental health issues. But I want to come back to Olivier's. Was there anything, Stephen, that you think now about their backgrounds that should have actually rung early alarm bells for them that maybe a relationship was not such a good idea. Is there any relationship where things go wrong, where we don't look back and say, I should have seen that red flag waving? I'm sure you've had them, I've had them, we ignore them. And of course they were there. And very early on in the Larry-Vivian relationship, before they were stars, she, she was a starlet who'd done one play with some success in London, some very minor films. He had not yet, but he'd been a failure in Hollywood. People don't realize this. He'd made his mark in the theater in, with Private Lives by Noel Coward, immediately went to Hollywood, did several films back to back, all of which flopped, got his big break opposite Greta Garbo, and she fired him. And here he is back in England, feeling like a disaster, beginning to make his name on the stage. And then he meets Vivian and... First of all, it was a friendship, although there's no doubt there was an attraction. He was married. So was she. They had children. And then it became overwhelming. And they finally decided to run away together. And just before that, literally weeks before that, they went to Denmark to do a stage production of Hamlet in Elsinore, where the play is set, on the ramparts, The play, the production was rained out by this torrent that bucketed down. They all had to relocate inside the ballroom of a a hotel. Somehow they made it work. The pressure is off. They're just beginning to feel relieved. And she goes nuts and physically attacks him. Mm -hmm. And there's only one recorded description of this. So we don't really know in any detail, except that he was so shocked that he actually asked her parents, was there mental illness in the family? And they, Ah. of course, took this as an insult and said no. And it was a turning point because he could have said, I'm worried, I'm going to step back. And instead, he decided to move forward. And when they got back home a few days afterwards, they ran away in the middle of the night. Mm. In all fairness, bipolar gets worse. And the the first signs of it were just beginning to be manifested in her. It's a an Ill, horrible, horrible illness that manifests itself often when people are in their teens or early 20s. There's a lot to believe now the first evidence comes around the time of puberty. And in fact, one of the most fascinating things for me was finding her teenage diaries, those little blue wafer-thin diaries. You know how we used to keep, you know, you'd have two inches square to write your, the entire day. 
and her handwriting at some point suddenly goes chaotic. And I thought, is this, again, this is where you're constantly making a decision on how to interpret something. And, and wherever I, I felt it was a decision, I tried to say that in the book, that there are other ways to see this. Is this just a teenager going through a mood or is it the sign of something deeper? And two things made me believe this was the first sign. One was, and she was about 16, 17. One was that one of the leading experts on bipolar said to me, this is the age when the first symptoms tend to be there. And then one of Britain's leading producers wrote in a note to somebody, you could always tell when Vivian was about to have an episode because her handwriting would suddenly change. And that to me was proof enough to say, yes, this was the first moment. But it was, those moments were rare. They weren't as extreme as they became. Olivia had the first flash when they were doing Hamlet. A second instance occurred when Vivian was under great pressure during the shoot for Gone with the Wind, when her assistant thought she was going mad. And she overdosed on sleeping tablets, which probably was an accident. But there's at least another instance where somebody very close to her thought this behavior is not just moods. And then well into the marriage, her bipolar really took over. Absolutely. And it becomes really very flamboyant and it's witnessed by many, many people. So at what point in the writing of the book, Stephen, did you come across the genetic heritage, the evidence of an uncle in an asylum in Calcutta, or what we now call Kolkata. Yes. I came upon it fairly early because a genealogist had done a family tree about Vivian's roots. And and I went through it because there's a whole big question, was she Indian or not? And by the way, in that era, you know, she was born in 1913, racism was terrible. And she grew up in India and the upper class in, in India were horrified if anybody would have a drop of Indian blood. You know, one of the interesting things about the British Raj is that you'd think as we move forward, racism would diminish, it increased. Because the more you take over an empire, the more you have to separate them from us. And so they were great pains to not be Indian. But there was a lot of evidence that the, the roots of the family are Armenian and a genealogist did some work and in this is buried the story about a man who's believed to be her great uncle. And then I actually went in search of the asylum itself in, in Calcutta. And there's nothing that exists anymore. They're, doing research there's almost impossible because all the paper has faded or disappeared. And different people tell you different things. It's the closest I could find to there being evidence of a genetic link, which is very widespread with bipolar. Now, this was not the only thing that she was suffering from. She also had TB, and TB can also impact on your behaviour, can it not? Absolutely, and there's a lot of feeling that it impacts on bipolar. And one of the big questions in the book, she got it while she was travelling, entertaining for the troops in Africa. There is some evidence that this may have been a recurrence, that she may have had it earlier, but it's not clear. But clearly she got it then and Olivier was very worried and she had to come back home and take, there was no cure except rest. But during her lifetime, antibiotics were found that did treat it. And, you know, she died of 
of TB. And so one of the great questions is, did she consciously lose interest in life? Mm. Or, which is a sort of romantic interpretation of things. Or was she not taking the medication? And as far as I could tell, her partner later in life, lovely actor named Jack Merivale, who's incredibly supportive, did note somewhere that she was taking the medication. But an expert I spoke to said it's a very difficult medicine to take. There are lots of tablets. They leave you feeling terrible. And I don't know if you've ever had malaria medication. It's so horrible, you'd rather have malaria, you know? Exactly, yeah. And she was drinking heavily, smoking heavily, people traipsing in and out of her place, exhausting her. And when she died, I, I wouldn't say she'd lost the will to live. I think she... she embrace life she wasn't getting the same joy that she had when she was married to Olivier but clearly she wasn't taking good care of herself and she was intelligent enough to know this was very risky Mm. I'm so glad that you start the book with that storm and Hamlet and the sort of red flag of Hamlet because what you do then is to show us the way Shakespeare was in a way a part of their romance could you just talk a little bit about that Yes, and by the way, I'm very glad that you're glad because the first draft of the book began in a very different place. And as every writer or would-be writer knows, you go through multiple versions. And I ended up cutting four out of the five initial first chapters, which were really about their lives before they met. And I finally thought, no, I'm writing the biography of a marriage. Mm. I'm not writing two biographies that intercut. And so I cut a lot. But your heart breaks because you're thinking, I spent two weeks in India. It cost me a lot of money. I had the worst food poisoning in my life. I was crawling across the bathroom floor. It's gone, you know. (laughs) This was you being the Hollywood equivalent of a war correspondent. Oh, my goodness. Yes, I, I felt like I was in the trenches. To answer your question, Olivier loved Shakespeare. I think that influenced Vivian, and they worked together on Shakespeare. I think what's been underestimated is her influence on him. He made her think of film acting as minor and irrelevant, that the mm. stage was all the matter was. In fact, she was a wonderful screen actress and an okay stage actress. He was the opposite, a wonderful stage actor and at times a very good screen actor, but the stage was his thing. People today know her better because she's extraordinary on screen, but he pushed towards Shakespeare. They did several Shakespeare's together. But behind the scenes, she had an intellect and a culture. She spoke several languages. She read voluminously. And I think that influenced him a great deal and led him to go deeper. I do love the fact, though, that you mentioned that not all their Shakespeare together was a great success. There's a hilarious Romeo and Juliet where I think in a heat wave, his nose, he's got a sort of prosthetic (laughs) nose on. And there's somewhere where it's very hot and it starts to melt. It was awful. And by the way, he'd done Wuthering Heights. She'd done Gone with the Wind. And George Cukor, great director, said to them, now's the time to cash in. By the way, always famously bad advice to any artist. Guys, go on a tour with Romeo and Juliet around the United States. You're going to make a mint. It was terrible. He at the time was not perceived as a great Shakespearean. People accused him of mangling the language. And everything they did went wrong. The first night, 
he tried to scale the balcony, missed, and he's left dangling by his fingertips. <laughs> Nobody could hear her. And then they get to New York and it's the most sweltering summer with no air conditioning. And by this time, he's starting to put on a little bit of a paunch and, and trying to have a girdle to keep that. And he's sweltering the heat. The putty nose starts melting. To give him his due, he went out there and gave a refund to everybody who wanted one. And what's fascinating about him is he wouldn't let go of a failure. He would come back to it. He'd done Romeo and Juliet with Gilgut, John Gilgut, and it hadn't been a great success. Famous production where they alternated Romeo and Mercutio. He came back to it. He did a very bad Othello. He came back to it. Macbeth, he did a great Macbeth later with Vivian Lee. I've rarely come across an actor who will confront his failure, had his mm -hmm. will to go deeper. And one of his best friends, Tony Bushell, who is an actor and later producer, who's one of the great sources for this book because 500 of his letters exist in the Motion Picture Academy library. Oh. And they're letters just to a friend of his dishing the dirt. And Brilliant. Said, you know, Olivier was not Olivier when he was 23, 24, 25. He was a matinee idol. Mm. And by the way, even his looks, he wasn't even so good looking when he was younger. Everything was willpower. And he would go out into the fields and practice and practice and bellow to the cows until his lungs had such power that he could sustain a speech. He could sustain a breath for four minutes. really useful at this point, Stephen, for you to remind us that these two people were not just actors, not just famous, not just stars. They were actually national symbols. People who are young today cannot possibly imagine how celebrated these people were in a kind of fervent patriotism, particularly during and just after the war. So can you just flesh that out a bit for us? Yes. And not initially, because they were in America at the beginning of the war, and they were exactly. very, very criticised for not coming back, even though the British ambassadors said, you're more useful doing propaganda here. And after a year, they did go back. And then Olivier enlisted. He was a pilot in the Navy's fleet, um, a notoriously bad pilot. He literally would crash planes <laughs> until they assigned him elsewhere. And yet in that process, he became, he was recognised for doing that. And then he did Henry V, and it really changed the perception. A film changed the perception. And he would go around and perform, and Vivian, of course, performed for the troops, and their image changed. And then he started playing some of these grand roles and he became this iconic figure. And that became the role he played in life. They bought an ancient abbey, lost all their money. They were not good with money. It, you know, they would plant orchards and redo rooms and buy gorgeous paintings. They were always broke, but it shifted their image. And they were Burton and Taylor before Burton and Taylor. Oh, I'm so pleased you said that because one of my questions was going to be when they have their kind of knockdown fights, it seems to me that this is a precursor to the Burton-Taylor couple, but possibly less vulgar, possibly yes, more Yes, precisely. Snobbish. 
Mm. You know, better furnishings. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You know, when we were working on the book, I said to the editor, "People attract them, attract because there is something classy about them." And it's not just the wonderful voices; it's not just the elegance of the performers. There is a sort of all all stars are selfish, but I do think they tried and cared for more than that. And they were never attracted to money, even though they spent it like fish. Time and again, Vivian turned down offers to go to Hollywood for a lot of money, mm. driving the, her producers crazy. The Burtons were sybarites very talented yeah. but Olivier said to Burton you can either be a great star or a great actor and he wanted to be a star Olivier wanted to be an actor absolutely now i just want to stay in the period after the war because this is of particular interest to australian listeners because of course in 1948 they embark on this massive tour to australia epic six months starting in perth why did they come? Why did they come for so long? And what happened while they were here? Oh my gosh, it was a disaster. They came for two reasons. First of all, because they wanted to raise money for the what was then the sort of incipient British National Theatre, and, and Olivier was the co-head of that. And secondly, because they thought this was good for the Commonwealth. Mm-hmm. Again, they could have done things that made them a lot more money, got them much more fame, and the tour began well and ended up with the two of them absolutely each other's throats. This was when Vivian met Peter Finch, Australian actor, which would lead to having an affair that almost broke up their marriage. And by the end of it, Olivier had broken his leg. He literally had to be lifted onto the ship going home, you know, with with a winch. She was flirting with other actors. All critics were tearing them to pieces. It really became a complete disaster and of, of, of epic proportions because that was really the turning point in their relationship where it now was crumbling mm. and he knew and she said to him afterwards I no longer love you I don't know if she meant it or if she said it in one of her bipolar moments when people do attack and you know in any couple you know the other person's vulnerability and in our worst moments, we don't usually go there. So did Vivian in that moment when they got back from Australia and when she said, I don't love you anymore. No, mm. this is where here's a guy whose mother died when he was 12, who always felt unloved, never got over that. And now she's saying it to him. But that concluded their six months in Australia. One of the things that interested me about Olivier is the way you describe his jealousy. When she gets an award, I think it may be when she gets the Oscar, he is so incensed that he can barely restrain himself, he says, from hitting her. So were they intensely competitive? And was that competition very damaging to them? Or did it raise them to ever greater heights? All of the above. <laughs> you know, human, human beings are not simple, us included. When Olivier was in Hollywood, he had Wuthering Heights, which was a big success. And then Vivian had Gone with the Wind, which was one of the all-time biggest. It's To this day, I, I've looked at the numbers, dollar for dollar, the most successful film in Hollywood history. Everybody knew her. You know, later they went on a tour of Yugoslavia. They all knew her. And yes, he was jealous. That said, he did everything to build her career. And 
put her in plays with him. That's an amazing letter when she's doing Gone with the Wind, where he writes to her, she's in the middle of shooting, he says, we both know this is going to be a gigantic flop. Let's yes. talk about what you're going to do next. That only changed when, later in their life, when Kenneth Tynan, famous British critic, extraordinarily astute and also quite vitriolic, mm. wrote a piece that said that Olivier was lowering himself to Vivian's level when he acted with her. Very cruel. Very, yes. very cruel review. He was very. particularly cruel about how small her voice was that she couldn't project. Yep. But he changed his mind later and felt he'd been mm -hmm. wrong, especially about her performance as Lady Macbeth. But it was devastating. Olivier took Tynan very seriously. And I think at some point, and this is different from jealousy, at some point he realised that if he were going to reach his full capacity, he could no longer be with her. It was the marriage or the career. And of course, he he built a life as a baron with that monastery that they spent all their money. He was also sick of that life. And he turned his back on everything and went to perform in the Royal Court Theatre, which is nowhere near as grand as it seems, that was the avant-garde, it was the left, it was who he was not, and did The Entertainer. And it completely catapulted him to the third act of his career, but there was no room for Vivian. You diagnose her, okay, I, I get it, but, but with him, I did wonder all the time reading your book whether you were subtly hinting to us that he was a narcissist. Well, all, all stars have some degree of narcissism, himself included, but I do think there was a great generosity inside him and a, a, he could be overwhelmingly generous in giving to other people. But he was competitive. So yes, every star is a narcissist, but he had great qualities. What he had trouble with was when somebody was tilting at his throne and then he was going to keep that throne. Hmm. And I interviewed lovely British actress, Rosemary Harris, who knew him well. And she said he, he just was jealous of that level of success. And one of the great things with artists is they define their work often in opposition to a rival. And John Gielgud was the great theatre actor, very lyrical, somewhat effete. Olivier defined himself as the opposite, muscular, energetic, dynamic, real, and it sh shifted him. But to do that, he had to be incredibly jealous of Gilgut. And as he was later as some of the other actors who began to seem as if they might be sitting on his throne. Is it a flaw? Yep. I still feel for him, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm just struck by something about Vivian Lee's career. I mean, it seems to me that when you look at Gone with the Wind and A Streetcar Named Desire, two of her greatest, greatest roles, well, Gone with the Wind is a tough act to follow, near impossible act to follow. And Streetcar seems to me much too close to the bone for someone of her psychological fragility. How much do you think one can attribute to her mental health in the roles that she chose to play? I mean, can a role damage you psychologically? Everybody warned Olivier when he directed Streetcar on the stage in England before Vivian did the, the film this is going to push her over the edge. And it did. And she believed that. And mm -hmm. she said it tipped her into madness. On the other hand, 
it was also part of his generosity that he agreed to direct it when he never really understood the play. She did, and she wanted to do it. So, yes, the roles, and by the way, not just the roles, but really the stress and the exhaustion, that has a very dire impact on bipolar. The other perspective is more complicated. You know, how, how much does somebody's mental precariousness influence their, their role? And I, I'm reluctant to take away from their professionalism, their skill, but you do feel at those moments in Gone with the Wind, the second half when her performance is stunning, when she's gone through the Civil War and she's weeping on the ground and tearing that red dirt, that everything she was going through coloured it. I find with Olivier, it's also true that it's fascinating me. And I've never seen this with any other artist, not the direct link between their real life and, and their work. There's always the link, but it's usually more tenuous. But he would take what was going on in his life and f- channel this energy in his work. So here's Vivian going through the other side of bipolar that people don't write about, the depression, which is crippling. She can barely move. And Olivier's coming home and being the lovely husband and taking care of her. And then filtering all his rage and bitterness into Richard III. <laughs> you know, at one point he's at home, he looks in the mirror and says, the monster smiled back. And I don't think he could have done Richard III without going through everything he went through with Vivian. Simon Callow, wonderful British actor, said she, everything he went through with her got him to deal with emotions he had never wanted to deal with in his life. God, that is fascinating. It, it is, but the price is the price. high. It's People don't realise the no. price for great art is always great pain, always. How did Americans react, Stephen, to the fact that this British actress triumphed as an embattled Southern belle, not only in Gone with the Wind, but in Streetcar. I mean, were Americans furious at the idea that these roles were snatched by this woman? Not Streetcar. It had been done on stage by Jessica Tandy with Brando. One of the things I found in the book, there's a private Brando archive that someone let me into, it was a letter from Jessica Tandy just dripping with contempt about Brando when they're rehearsing the play, saying, don't you know about professionalism? Don't you think that you need to learn the lines because this is a great work? And by the way, that stuttering, mumbling thing you do, is that deliberate? (laughs) Right. And you understand why he didn't want to work with her again. So Streetcar, no, the the studio wanted different people. Mm Mm-hmm. I think Kazan, the director, Olivia, originally wanted Olivia de Havilland and the studio and the producer pushed for Vivian, but there was no backlash. Now, with Gone with the Wind, it was the opposite. Here's the biggest book in history after the Bible, you know, and here is the most iconic role. And it is not just a Southerner, not just American, but it is about the quintessential event in American history, the defining event, the Civil War. And you're going to cast an unknown English woman. And there were letters people wrote. Famous Hollywood gossip columnist wrote vitriol about it. And the thing we also forget is, remember, this is 1939. There's a whole movement in America that is 
nationalist and against the idea of America going to war. Mm-hmm. And the thought that you're going to cast, you know, this Brit in a role that we identify with when we don't want anything to do with them, let them go into war on their own. All this played a great role. People completely forget how America became unified in favor of World War II after Pearl Harbor, much later. There was a gigantic movement against going to war in favor of isolationism. Charles Lindbergh, the aviator, was very prominent in it. And that played a role. So this became more than just an actress being cast. It was an actress Mm. cast in the most important role in history and a defining part of Americana. So given your past at The Hollywood Reporter, I'm particularly interested to know, Stephen, then, how complicit were the media of the time in hiding whatever they knew about these sorts of troubles? I mean, we think of this now as being matter of course when it comes to deference around the royal family. Was it the same? I don't think so. There was the Hollywood press core that was kind of in the pocket of the studios. The British tabloids were alive and well, and they wrote every rumour. I don't think people knew. They didn't know what bipolar was. It was called manic depression. Mm-hmm. When things really exploded and the press savaged them, they referred to it as a, break, a nervous breakdown. So I don't think they were complicit in, in hiding things. I think they were pretty destructive. But I think there's a time when she comes back from somewhere on a stretcher, doesn't yes. she, on a plane, and there's been a knockdown fight. I mean, there's been some terrible mm. physical fisticuffs. Would the press have reported on that they or would did. they have tiptoed around it? That's, that's what you would think. Nope, it's, it's there. They described it being forced onto the plane with the help of Danny Kay, about being carried off the, the plane, about having a nervous breakdown. They didn't know a lot. But I, I don't think you can say that the British press was in any way complicit, just, just the opposite. Okay. And I was curious about something in the book, Stephen, which was what became of Vivian's daughter by her previous marriage, Suzanne? Did she manage to have a normal life and grow up okay? Or was she very scarred by all of this? From what I gather, she was pretty scarred by her relationship with her mother. You know, for, for your audience that doesn't know, Vivian got pregnant, had a baby when she was 19 with her first husband, who was an older man, British lawyer, barrister, and and then she met Olivier. She never had the slightest maternal instinct, even though she had a number of miscarriages and wanted to have a kid with Olivier. Mm. The girl was brought up by her father and her grandmother, I think always lived in the shadow because she had wanted to be an actress and she didn't have Vivian's looks, didn't have her talent. She got married. I don't know how well that went. I gather from other people I spoke to that she was always disappointed in her relationship with her mother. And she died a number of years ago. She has a couple of sons who are alive. I spoke to one of them at one point, the grandsons, but they'd only met Vivian once or twice. The children of celebrities don't have easy lives. When we grow up, we go, I would love to be the son of Laurence Olivier and have all those contacts. But you are forever the son of Laurence Olivier. And I spoke to his two sons for this. They were incredibly helpful and caring. And the younger one, Tarquin, who's 
the son of his marriage to Joan Plowright, his third marriage. Just the most gracious person. But he's never had a career that equals his father's. And of course, as soon as you hear the name Olivier, are you related to? And that's your identity. It's very difficult. Yes, I mean, there would be notable exceptions would be, say, Jane Fonda, but that would be an anomaly. Oh, but who's had as great a career as her father. But look what a troubled person Jane Fonda is, which she would admit, one of the most insecure people you've ever met. Utterly fragile, dominated by her emotions, with a very difficult relation with her father, a mother who killed herself. I mean, these are not lives to envy. By the way, I love Jane Fonda. And I think she's one of the all-time great actresses. But but I do feel that your book, in a way, is a kind of cautionary tale mm. about the role that fame plays in terms of being a kind of fuel to the fire if there is any mental illness around the two, when they come into contact, combust. The book is a cautionary tale which breaks my heart because it's actually a cautionary tale about passion. And we all want passion. I'm still looking for it, you know. <laughs> Where is that woman to fall in love with? <laughs> and it was the real passion is such a violent emotion and all-consuming. And one of the most heart-rending things that I mentioned in the book, actually twice, it's the only line I, I mentioned twice, is when Olivier had left his first wife, another actress, Jill Esmond, in years to come, she turned to her son and said, and her, she... It was such a traumatic event, her hair went white almost overnight. And she forgave him. She turned to her son and said, I've only ever seen true passion once. God forbid it should ever happen to you. Wow. Well, and then, I mean, you know, this is a very poignant note to kind of end our conversation on. But would you perhaps also then like to mention Olivier at the end of his life, what he said watching Vivian on film? Yes, she said, this, this was love. And, well, it was. Mental health has given a new dimension to biography with increased access to medical records, a better understanding of conditions such as addiction, depression and bipolar, and of their treatment. But there is no medical term for the kind of chemistry that makes two charismatic and gifted people such dangerous partners, bringing out not only the best but the worst in each other, both in public and in private. Fame certainly added fuel to the fire when it came to Olivier and Lee. They were not the first couple it happened to, nor the last, but their stormy, passionate partnership had a quality that made them legendary. This is the last in the series. Big thanks to my producers David Roach at Two Heads Media and to Dave and Fiona Matters at Pipe Wolf Media. Music is composed and performed by Amanda Brown. Life Sentences will be back later this year. In the meantime, get in touch via social media to suggest biographies I should look at or to leave us a review. Thanks for listening.